Welcome to the City Road Podcast. Join us on City Road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research. Follow us on Apple Podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers and welcome to this very first episode of City Road Podcast, a podcast by the researchers at the Urban Housing Lab. We're recording this in the City Road studios in the basement of the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. And it's great to have you along. In this episode, we're asking the question, are websites like Airbnb really about sharing or are they about big business and profit making? Joining us in the studio is Professor Nicole Gurren from the University of Sydney's School of Architecture, Design and Planning to talk us through the impact of online home sharing platforms for global cities like Sydney. Short-term rental websites have certainly transformed the way we travel around the world. More than 150 million people have already stayed in an Airbnb home and you can choose from over 3 million homes listed in more than 190 countries. That's more than the world's largest hotel chains, like the Marriott or the Hilton. But by reimagining local residential homes and bedrooms as potential tourist sites, Airbnb might also be transforming our local communities. These global tech operators are operating beyond the established tourist quarters of many cities. And in some ways, they're trying to bypass existing urban planning and building management controls. And not everyone's convinced of the local benefits that these global tech operators promote. In fact, there's increasing opposition to so-called holiday home sharing platforms from local residents and authorities throughout North America, Europe and Australasia. Their concerns are about the influx of tourists, and along with them, increasing noise, rubbish, and traffic congestion. And then there's the declining business for local tourist operators and a decrease in permanent rental accommodation in major global cities. So, Nicole, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, How about we start off by you telling us what your area of research is and how you came to the Airbnb question? I mean, I've been a housing and planning researcher for over a decade now, and one of the things that really fascinated me about Airbnb and the idea of the so-called sharing economy was the possibility that you could use online technology to liberate essentially spare capacity within the existing housing and urban system. And that's almost the holy grail for urban planning researchers and for housing policymakers. It's how to, on demand, release um, space that's available within existing homes and existing communities without having to wait for new homes and buildings to go through that construction process. But as I began to excavate as a researcher, I started to find out that the Airbnb story isn't quite so benign and that the impacts of things like Airbnb on existing communities and housing markets could be troubling, particularly in housing markets like Sydney, where we've already got a shortage of affordable rental housing. Could you tell me a little bit about that housing shortage? Over the past decade, I guess, there's been growing awareness that 
rental affordability as well as home purchase affordability, but even rental affordability in Sydney has been worsening, even for people who've got what you'd normally regard to be relatively well-paying jobs and people who li- who need to live near university or near work or near transport. And so we've seen in inner city areas, despite an incredible increase in new housing construction and in new flats and apartments, we've seen that the availability of, of rental housing, so those are homes that are advertised in the real estate agent and available for families or for individuals to to go in and rent. We've seen that vacancy rates have shrunk, so we've had less supply and we've also seen rents in many parts of the inner city rising steadily over time. So let's move on to the accommodation websites. And they're not all the same, are they? Can you tell us a little bit about how they're different? Sure. I mean, when this idea of home sharing began about a decade ago, really, it wasn't on our radar. It was kind of a fringe thing that intrepid tourists could do. Couchsurfing was the non-profit originator, I guess, of home sharing, and it still exists, and people can go around the world and, and share people's couches or beds, and they use an online kind of social media-based platform to do that. But over time, and probably in particular over the past seven or eight years, as real estate itself began to be advertised on the web and as hotel rooms um, began to be advertised on hotel sites, so too did space in people's homes and apartments. And so websites like Airbnb, which really has the largest market share of any of the so-called, and I call them holiday home sharing websites, but of any of the um, home sharing websites, Airbnb's got the full spectrum. So you can rent a couch in someone's room, you, in someone's house or apartment, you can rent a room or you can rent someone's old house when they go away on holidays or just like you might have once been able to rent that house on the permanent market, you see quite a lot of homes now being made available as permanent holiday homes rather than um, rather than as, as permanent housing stock. So we're starting to see holiday homes moving into what would be traditional residential suburbs. And places like Sydney have population pressures and increasing housing densities. So how do home sharing platforms impact on population and housing density pressures? I mean, it's been um, an interesting process, I think, in particular for people in Sydney and for Melbourne, because we've seen as Airbnb has really taken off, particularly in the last five years since it, it, it came to Australia in 2011, that has coincided with a massive growth in apartments. And so by the end of last year, we had around 24,000 Airbnb listings in Sydney. In the same year, we approved around 24,000 new apartments. Now, those figures aren't related, but they show a tremendous change in the way that homes are produced, in the way that homes are financed, and the way that homes are used. So it's quite a different proposition to be living next door, for instance, to a holiday home in perhaps a country town where you've got a backyard and where you don't perhaps have the same um, parking pressures or you know issues around noise and navigating how your neighbours behave. It's quite a different proposition to have tourists living next door in that scenario to be living in an apartment. So how does Airbnb impact on these high density markets in terms of rental accommodation? Well what we can see is that 
there's a high concentration when we look spatially at where Airbnb listings are and particularly where Airbnb listings of whole apartments sort of permanently available as holiday homes, where we look uh, at where those tend to be, they tend to coincide with areas where there's higher proportions of, of strata accommodation, even though our data is quite limited. Add that to the anecdotal evidence that we're starting to hear through things like the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry late last year, which reported on the adequacy of of regulation over short-term rental accommodation and the advocacy of people living in strata accommodation. And we get a picture of, of reports like tourists having very loud and drunken parties, misbehaving or damaging common areas in apartments, people coming and going at all times of the day or night. And the proximity that comes from living right, you know, sharing a common wall, for instance, and hallways and elevators and lobbies with other people anyway, when you add to that sort of tourists who don't know what's going on, and often large groups of tourists, you start to get a picture of how those two things don't live very happily together. Yeah, and Airbnb would say that this is good for homeowners because renting a spare bedroom can help them pay for their housing costs. So would you agree with that? I mean, that's a really interesting proposition. I should say, firstly, that because there's different forms of home sharing, as I outlined, you might be sharing someone's whole house when they go away. And so even though the the tourists are staying in the whole house, that's not happening very many times of the year. Similarly, if the resident host is letting out a room or perhaps a bed or two in their apartment, they're on site. And so the the expectation is that the tourists behave better because the hosts can moderate their behaviour. But when you're talking about whole apartments or homes being permanently used as Airbnb accommodation and no one on site to manage that, that's where the trouble really arises. So do we know how many whole homes are being rented out compared to how many people are just renting out one or two bedrooms? Let me just take a look at the statistics. In our paper in the Journal of the American Planning Association, we reported on data from 2015-16. We've now got some data available from April 2017. And what that shows is that around about... 28% of the listings in Sydney would be regarded as frequently available whole homes that are sort of um, really rented out so frequently that they wouldn't be available permanently for residents. And about 70% are actually um, rooms and shared rooms. And what that number equates to is around about 6,000 homes being permanently taken out of the rental stock in Sydney and about 17,000 households using um, using their homes when they go away or using rooms and, and beds to bring in some extra rental income. But the picture changes when you look more closely at particular suburbs in parts of Sydney. And so there, when you look at suburbs like the City of Sydney and Waverley, for instance, very high proportions of the rental housing stock 
are now being um, dedicated solely to Airbnb and perhaps more concerning from the perspective of affordable rental housing supply, the proportion of homes being dedicated or being listed as permanently available and being rented frequently on Airbnb is growing. So that problem in high demand suburbs is growing. And to give you an idea, in the city of Sydney, for instance, which takes into account suburbs like Haymarket, Surrey Hills, um, Redfern, a lot of a lot of places actually where students need to live and where um, inner city workers um, need to live, key workers, etc. The proportion of homes that are advertised relatively permanently on Airbnb amount to about one and a half times the rental vacancy rate. So that's quite significant. And then when you go to Waverley, which of course includes Bondi Beach, um, but also a number of other inner ring suburbs that offer an important um, source of permanent homes for residents as well, around four and a half times the vacancy rate in Waverley is actually available via Airbnb. But it's also the case that with online websites such as Airbnb and making homes available for tourist accommodation rather than just hotels, tourists suddenly have a whole lot more variety in terms of the places that they can choose to go and stay in, places that they might not have found out about without online advertisements, but also places where there traditionally hasn't been a high supply of tourist accommodation. Mm. So the geography is very important here. And I guess another part of this geography is that these are big international global digital tech companies, but they're operating in very local markets and local communities. So how do we regulate these global companies with state or local rules? That's a really interesting question because for many years, many cities have essentially ruled out tourist accommodation in residential areas. It's been regarded to be incompatible, partly because of some of the amenity issues that I mentioned, partly because there's additional fire and health and safety considerations that you need to regulate when it comes to tourist accommodation, and for a large part because of the risk that tourist accommodation will overtake the availability of lower cost rental housing supply and we certainly saw that in Sydney in the 1980s and the early 1990s when those beautiful Victorian terrace houses began to be converted into backpacker hostels and we saw some very alarming fires because the fire code wasn't up to scratch but we also saw the sort of the the early march of gentrification in the inner city partly fueled by tourist demand and so those traditional forms of planning regulation have proved to be ineffective when it comes to things like online home sharing because unlike with a traditional tourist um, establishment when you need to often do physical modifications to the building, even with backpackers hostels, there's some very obvious presentation to the street. And you once needed permission to do those things. With Airbnb, you can transform any dwelling. Are we seeing governments push back against these big uh, digital home sharing companies? Some governments in some countries and certainly some city authorities in some countries have mounted legal campaigns to try and control particularly the conversion of permanent homes to um, to tourist accommodation and we've seen that in cities like New York, London, Berlin, 
San Francisco, Portland, um, in Australia, the reaction hasn't been so immediate. We've seen our governments take a watch-and-see approach or wait-and-see approach. Where governments have moved in to try and regulate Airbnb, they've found it very difficult because of the sort of invisibility um, of stock being converted, if you like. It happens online. The tourists aren't necessarily visible unless you've got people out on the street watching for people, you know, walking around with suitcases. It can be quite hard to detect that kind of activity. Mm. So we're told that smart cities are good cities and these big tech companies are part of the smart city narrative, but the data that they collect, uh, who owns that data and should they be sharing that type of data? Well, certainly. I mean, even as researchers, we're limited in the types of research and analysis that we can do in Australia and internationally because Airbnb doesn't make data about listings and the location of listings and the composition of listings publicly available. So we rely on open access source inside Airbnb as a basis for doing our work. And, um, of course, that then allows companies such as Airbnb to contest the findings but not necessarily making their own data available. And so you, you see a public debate and a public policy debate that's dominated by anecdote. You see extreme anecdotes by people who who are really badly affected by Airbnb and, and, and sort of extrapolate their stories, you know, in a in a very dramatic way. So you've got, you know, the idea of Airbnb as being all about drunken parties and, you know, displacing tenants left, right and centre on the one hand. And then you have a very benign picture that's painted by Airbnb where, you know, renting homes and renting your home when you go away and your spare room to tourists is a way of your residents meeting their own housing costs. If data shapes that what we know about these practices, what is the politics of the data that Airbnb is playing with here? We'd have to assume that Airbnb is releasing the types of stories and commissioning the types of studies that it feels advances its case. And I think that's unfortunate because there's many potentially very positive things around the idea of home sharing. In fact, many people themselves will enjoy staying in someone's home when they travel. And so it's not an inherently negative activity. And I think there's many potentials to bring positive um, impacts for neighbourhoods and, and for communities. So it does surprise me that companies like Airbnb in particular are so untransparent in just providing basic information about the growth of listings, the composition of Airbnb listings and, and sort of the spatial spread of listings in, in particular cities mm. and suburbs. Mm. If you had to do three things to try to um, address some of the negative impacts of Airbnbs in Sydney, what would they be? Data is actually part of the answer here because this is a phenomenon that has grown so rapidly and is still playing out and I don't think anybody knows where and how that will move to. So we don't completely understand what the negative impacts are nor do we understand the potential positive impacts of Airbnb. So the first thing that I would do would be to open up the Pandora's box so that we've got a very clear picture of how 
properties, how homes come to be listed and why, and who is doing the listing and how frequently those homes are, are being rented out and, and what proportion. We certainly have our best estimates based on the best available data that we have access to, but it would be very, very useful to be able to track that over time in a consistent and systematic way so that we get a real picture of what proportion of the rental housing stock, in particular suburbs, is being converted permanently to Airbnb. And the number one policy measure, in my view, that we need to take to prevent that problem from growing is to introduce restrictions on the period of time that particular properties can be rented out via Airbnb or indeed via any online platform. So how would that work? It's difficult to do that without the cooperation of the platforms, but we do have precedents in cities like London and now San Francisco, where Airbnb has agreed to work with local authorities to introduce licensing and permitting permitting systems, and then to refuse to actually accept bookings for whole properties once they exceed a particular threshold, and that threshold's usually 90 days. So it's a kind of day counter mm. um, model. And after 90 days, the property is no longer available via Airbnb. So you can rent out your property for 90 days, and once it hits that 90-day mark, your property can no longer be listed on Airbnb. And the idea is that stops people from solely using their property as a financial venture and, and points more towards some of those other social benefits. Is that part of the idea behind that? That's that's the idea exactly. And those 90 days might not be consecutive. So the idea being if you're going away for two weeks or you're lucky enough to be going away for a month, you can use your house listed on the platform. And that's certainly not going to impact anyone in terms of the availability of rental housing because you wouldn't have been renting that out to a permanent resident either when you went away. So that's really the idea. It's it's saying people do um, have flexibility to use their homes as they like, but in markets, and it may only be appropriate in markets where there's already a shortage of permanent rental housing, but in those markets then it's appropriate to try and preserve the existing supply. When it comes to regulating Airbnb, there's a number of different ways that planners and policymakers need to think about the potential issues in their area. And it's really important to emphasise that these issues will be different in different housing markets and in different communities. The first thing is to think about whether there are any primary health and safety issues that might emerge from tourist accommodation that's not regulated. And in high-density strata, communities where you've got a lot of your flats and apartments. The concern, of course, is around fire safety, which um, the fire safety regulations are different for residential housing to um, the regulations for tourist accommodation. So you want to make sure that, that that's covered off. You want to be careful around standards like occupation, like the numbers of people who are staying in particular rooms, because that can become an issue when it comes to public health, spread of disease and all of those types of things. And I'm sure you remember in your sort of in your youth staying in some really hideous um, accommodation overseas and the potential issues that that can be for, for public health. That's why in Australia we try to regulate the, the standard of accommodation that we provide. 
But in sort of beyond the capital cities, we're also concerned about things like swimming pools and balconies and making sure that, that, that they're maintained. So you've got some very, very basic things that you want to do as regulators. Moving up the ladder, we then need to make sure that the, that the amenity issues, that the, that the nuisances that neighbours are concerned about, things like are there noisy parties going on at, at all hours of the night? Is there, you know, drunkenness spilling out onto the streets? Have we got traffic jams or not enough parking? Things like that that can be managed by existing local government nuisance regulations, but we need to have a better handle on how much of an issue this is and whether it's a growing issue particularly because of homes being increasingly converted to holiday accommodation. Then we start to think about whether homes are being converted at at a proportion that means that the existing residents are no longer able to access rental housing in the places that they need to live. And that concerns us because of the housing affordability issue, particularly in inner city areas. But it may also concern us in in places like Byron Bay, for instance, parts of coastal Victoria, where residents say they don't recognise their town or their neighbourhood anymore because there's simply no permanent uh, residents left. And so that's the kind of touristification, if you like, of a place that that has also been a concern in Australia, an emerging concern, but an established uh, problem highlighted by research in parts of Europe, such as Barcelona, Lisbon and Berlin. So we have tourists as an individual problem, creating noise and other things while they're staying in these properties. But we also seem to have in there tourists as a macro problem in terms of uh, gentrification issues as well. Is there a connection between home sharing platforms and gentrification? The connection's not there yet because home sharing is very new, but certainly some of the research to come out of parts of Europe, and, and I'd identify Barcelona and Lisbon in particular, would suggest that, and those are, those are cities that were already affected by the phenomenon of second home tourism, where wealthier people have a second home or an apartment in very attractive tourist cities. So those cities were already affected to a degree. But online home sharing potentially expands that market so dramatically. And so you do see, start to see, initially anecdotal, but I think we'll start to see it in the data very clearly, people saying that the composition of their neighbourhood is changing dramatically. What are your views on the term sharing? Do you think sharing is an accurate term to describe what's happening here? I think sharing is certainly a marketing construction um, when it comes to home sharing via platforms such as Airbnb. It's really renting. When you do anything, to my mind, if you're doing anything for money, then it's renting, you know. Um, That's not to say that that makes the practice not appealing to many of the people who are involved in it. But if we wanted to describe something properly as home sharing, we'd probably apply that label to couch surfing, really, where there's, you know, people are genuinely sharing their homes with strangers without sort of a commercial transaction being involved. Excellent. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Pleasure.
So that's it for this week. But remember, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review via our iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.